0: You are hosting 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project Podcast, episode 24, the most notorious research facility. Hey, this is Remy. Actually, I guess I am hosting 2.1, but you know. The title card for this week's episode is Hokusai Grid, the Ginteki upgrade that does one net damage when a successful run is made. The flavor text is, despite its appearance, the Hokusai Grid is the most notorious research facility at Gentechi. I was going to say it doesn't really apply to anything in this episode, but it kind of does. It kind of does. I'm going to be talking very briefly about a, well, I'll get into a research station segment. And, uh, yeah, well, that's coming up. But first, let me hit some breaking news. Breaking news. League play for the Reboot Project. There are three separate leagues, if you don't count this one, the 2.1 group. But there are three different leagues going on in the Reboot Project on a regular basis. The Constructed League, the Pre-Constructed League, and the LCG-style League. Now, I missed the announcement for you on the Pre-Constructed League. That started up a couple of weeks ago. But the Constructed League starts up a week from when this episode drops. And the LCG-style league starts up the day this episode drops. But I'm sure that if if you want to play, you can get in there and they'll make room for you. So, league play is a nice way to play the game. It's basically like a... um, It's just basically like a tournament. Usually it's four or five rounds. Cut to a top four or whatever. Or top two. And... And then you just, it's just basically Swiss pairings. Uh, but it's only usually one game a week. So it's pretty manageable. A nice way to do a little more structured play in the reboot project. Anonymous tip. A little bit more, sort of, about criminal. This that I'm going to quote here it has a little more broad application than just the early pool that we're dealing with here but i thought it was some interesting observations uh, particularly for someone that's new to the game either new completely or maybe you're just more familiar with the null signal version of the game before i get into the comment i want to note a couple of cards that i haven't previously discussed security testing which is a criminal resource that comes in honor and profit the second deluxe expansion each turn you pick a server, and the first time you run that server, instead of accessing cards, you gain two credits. And then Grifter, which is from Mala Tempora, coming up fairly soon, the third pack in the second cycle, a criminal resource where you gain a credit at the end of your turn if you made a successful run. So it's a little combo that basically just generates three credits per click in a, for one click per turn. It's kind of like an easy mark, except you can do it multiple turns in a row. Anyway, this comment is something that the big boy said in the, I want to say it was on the general channel of the reboot Discord server a couple months ago. He said, I think the biggest adjustment people have to make to reboot old school Netrunner is that there's a solid chunk of runner decks where proactively trying to score early is very bad, whereas in post-rotation net runner, basically every corp that wasn't some kind of prison monstrosity was trying to score right away. I think what he means there is not that the runner decks trying to score early are bad, but the corp decks, uh, there's a bunch of runners against whom the corp doesn't want to score early. He goes on, when you play against pre-constructed criminals and you're not some single-minded rush deck, You need to play defense before you really do anything. Like, as HB Glacier, shutting off security testing grifter is a higher priority than getting your campaigns going. Of course, if you didn't draw enough ice to actually shut it off, setting up your campaign is better than doing nothing, but you're on the path to losing with that line. I think if you score an agenda, and they're still triggering grifter and other triggers every turn, You're a big underdog. And you'll probably give up points defending all this, but the upside is that unlike Anarchs or Shapers, they won't control the game as it goes late. They can't money up to 20 and run your remote five times. They can't destroy your ice. So the win condition cards you usually need against Shapers to score, you might not need at all, since the criminal will be broke and scrambling to single access every few turns. Generally, it goes defend siphon, defend security testing, redefend siphon, establish light threat in remote while being able to duck siphon. From there, you react to where they're pressuring and put your additional ice there. And this might mean that it takes until your fifth ice to put one on the remote. So, when he says defend siphon, he means you're basically putting an ICE on HQ. To defend against security testing, I think you need to ICE both R&D and archives. Then to redefend siphon, you're putting another ICE on HQ. Now you have four ICE out. You haven't built a remote yet. It goes along with the comment that was made in last week's anonymous tip, the idea that don't open a remote server until you can actually defend it. In this case, you're not wanting to open it because in later the later pool, the corpse are going to be able to score off of you. You know, not to score off of you, but to, to take money off of you. And really, even in the early pool, you've got something like bank job, where if you have a naked asset remote, the bank job just runs in there and gets money. So, another more, more information about defending against criminals. research station, StimHack. So as best as I can tell, right here around the time of the release of Humanity's Shadow is when StimHack, the website, stimhack.com, started to be online. As time went by, it has, well, what is StimHack? Okay, so it has multiple resources. Uh, for one thing, there is there are a lot of articles that are posted on StimHack. Uh, Not so much recently, but certainly in the heyday of Netrunner, a lot. Really, StimHack became sort of the hub of Netrunner. Uh, Also, many tournament-winning deck lists were posted on StimHack. Plus, StimHack had a forum where there was a lot of conversation. At the beginning of the game... Board game geek is where the focus of the forum was, where the conversation, the community really was. But once StimHack started, eventually the community largely moved over to StimHack. And then at some point, within you know around the time of the, the game ending, maybe a little before that, the, the Fantasy Flight version, uh, StimHack had a slack workspace. Uh, stim Slack, where a lot of conversation was going on. I don't know whether that still exists or not, but the StimHack forums are still up, and a lot of the articles are still there. And so I'm going, I figure if an article is there and it's been left up, is probably, in many cases, something worth talking about. I've read an article from there already when I read Dan DiArgenio's article about. Waldemar, the deck that we discussed several episodes back. But uh, I'll continue to refer to it. Still, it's a nice resource. In fact, there was a, a data pack review for Humanity Shadow on there too. I just didn't have any spot where I could really fit it in. I may start to try to work in those uh, pack reviews into my own comments. We'll see. <laughs> Archived memories, the difference between good and bad combos. This is an article from Stimhack. It's the very first one that was posted. It's dated May first, twenty thirteen. So again, that puts it right around the time of Humanity's shadow re- Shadows release. Alex Frog is Alex Rockwell is the author of the article. And it's kind of long, and so it's most of what the rest of this episode is going to be about. Uh, Now, of course, you can just go and read this article yourself. But if you're like me, uh, well, maybe you're not that interested in reading a 10-year-old article. I don't know. But if you're like me, I don't have time really to sit and read an article, but I do have time to listen. So here you go, an article to listen to about Combo's. In any card game, people love combos. Absolutely any combo at all, someone loves it. Can you put a given two cards together and have the sum be greater than the individual parts? If so, some guy is out there on an internet forum somewhere exclaiming that this card is the greatest thing in the history of human civilization, even better than the printing press, which just happened to be necessary to create the physical card. But here is the thing. Some combos are good, and some are bad. Not just any combo is the greatest invention since the plow. The key to understand here is that when evaluating cards, many people get hung up on the best-case scenario. If I get both of these cards together in the right order and this situation happens, then it does something awesome. Therefore, these cards are awesome. In truth, it is far better and more realistic to evaluate a card's expected value, that is, weigh its value over all probabilities, weight the probabilities based on how likely they are, compute the averaged expected result. In a standard combo, cards A and B, if combined, provide a more powerful effect. For example, Parasite, and Data Sucker, Sneak Door Beta and Emergency Shutdown, Archer and Corporate Troubleshooter, Underworld Contacts and Rabbit Hole, Cell Portal and Akitaro, Pad Campaign and Encryption Protocol, Scorched Earth and Scorched Earth, put together The cards grow in power due to their synergy with each other. Most of these combos that I listed are good combos. What is the key that distinguishes a good combo from a bad combo? For a good combo, the expected value of the cards are high. Not just the net result of having both, but the expected value of each individual card Averaging together the chances that I have its combo partner or not. Sneak Door Beta is a good card, regardless of whether you have Emergency Shutdown. Emergency Shutdown is a good card, regardless of whether you have Sneak Door. Their expected value was already strong. The fact that they improve if you put them together just makes them better. The same is true for Parasite and Data Sucker. But some of these combos are questionable. Underworld Contacts and Rabbit Hole. Okay, there is potential here. But without Link, Underworld Contacts is blank. Is this a good combo? Maybe if I build in enough redundancy into my deck with replacement Rabbit Hole pieces like Dyson and Memchip. And if the Rabbit Hole remains useful to me, even without the Underworld contact. Akitaro and Cell Portal. Well, Akitaro is pretty good on his own, but Cell Portal is pretty questionable. I have to draw it early, or else I can't put it to the bottom of my ice fort where it needs to be. Or maybe I have to add a third combo card, Sunset, to make it work. And the Sunset is even more useless outside of my combo. And now I need even more cards to make my combo work. I need non-end-the-run ice in front of my cell portal. Maybe I need a whirlpool somewhere. And on and on I go, adding cards to my combo that intrinsically are not strong on their own, but are only good in my combo. It's clear that this combo isn't at the power level of sneak door and emergency shutdown. Each individual card isn't as strong, and I am really depending on having both or putting together many cards to get value. The average across all probabilities is weaker. My expected value is lower. Let's look at varieties of combos. Auto-win combo. In a way, the ultimate combo is the auto-win combo. If you get cards X, Y, and Z together and they all work, then you win. Sea Source, Scorch, Scorch. Black Lotus, Channel, Fireball. That's got to be a Magic the Gathering reference. Many combo decks throughout the history of customizable card games have been built around these sorts of combos. Now, the reward for an auto-win combo is super high you win! Possibly in a super-impressive way, which makes people secretly giggle with delight as they're able to subject the opponent to a humiliating loss at the hand of the utter brilliance of their combo, ignoring the fact that said combo was discussed in detail on every internet forum in existence. Some combos throughout CCG history have even been so involved that they require about 10 minutes of exacting calculation resource management and accounting, to generate the final result. What could be better than that, some players think? Not only do I win, but my opponent is forced to spend 10 minutes focused on watching me mess with my cards, counting up resources and converting them into other resources, forcing him to witness the greatness of my concoction. Footnote, this was especially true of any combo involving this card. And then here he has a card from Magic the Gathering called Yogmoth's Bargain. Now, I don't know anything about magic. This card says, skip your draw step, pay one life, draw a card. Alternatively, some thought the combo was the opposite of awesome because playing it all day in a tournament was so hard that you would get a headache for sure. It was a true, real-life Yogmoth's Bargain. You endured physical pain in return for your power. Several factors potentially assail the value of the auto-win combo. First of all, sometimes it might not win if the opponent has appropriate countermeasures. If my Cell Portal combo fails due to a Gordian Blade and 6 credits, it doesn't seem quite as good anymore. Scorched Earth times 2 has Plascrete to counter it. Neural Katana... Into Snare is preventable by Deus Ex, or playing Diesel first. Now, some counters are bad, narrow cards. They are generally ignorable unless the meta becomes dominated by your combo. If your combo has these kinds of counters, you might not need to worry, unless everyone starts playing the deck. But being countered by a common card like Gordian Blade and $6, well, that's worrisome. This is part of why we all hate Woodcutter. We know that all your effort is just going to get crushed by a single Parasite, a commonly played card. Secondly, the auto-win combo was limited by how many different cards must be assembled to complete it, and how fast it can work. Clearly, a three-card combo is way worse than a two-card combo, and something faster and cheap is far better. If an auto-win combo is too consistent, too fast, and without sufficiently good counterplay, then it becomes dominant. It becomes an easy way to win the game. For example, if you play Wayland Scorched Earth with Project Atlas for consistency, and there is no Plazcrete in existence, then you've got a dominant combo. The one-card combo. The ultimate form of an auto-win combo, or even just a very strong combo, is the one-card combo. What's that, you ask? How can one card be a combo? Throughout the history of customizable deck-building games, certain cards have existed as the engines of powerful combo decks. For example, in Magic the Gathering, we had the notorious Necropotence. So now we have another card here, which says... Skip your draw step. Whenever you discard a card, exile that card from your graveyard. Pay one life. Exile the top card of your library face down. Put that card into your hand at the beginning of your next end step. Ironically dubbed the worst card in the Ice Age set by Inquest magazine when it was released. LOL. How bad are people at card evaluation? This card fueled combo decks for years by providing nearly infinite card draw potential. When having one card lets you draw all other cards, your combo is suddenly not just completed, but also supported and backed up by tons of other cards in your deck to ensure that it works. For another example, there is Survival of the Fittest. Here it says... There's some little symbol. It looks like a tree. Then it says, discard a creature card. Search your library for a creature card. Reveal that card and put it into your hand. Then shuffle your library. You could spend a mana, a mana, mana, mana. That must be what that symbol is. And discard a creature to then go get any other creature. Okay, sounds like a fair trade, right? No net gain of cards. Well, the thing about repeatedly looking through your deck and picking any card, is that with a big enough card pool, you tend to be able to circumvent any obstacle and break any resource cost loop. You see, first you could go get Squee, and then you would discard him to get another creature. Now every turn Squee comes back to your hand, so we are negating the discard a creature repeated cost. Next we are going to find some Vengevines, mispronouncing this probably, discarding them all to search for the rest and get them all in the discard. You see, we actually wanted them there. They come back out of the discard. Rather than my combo requiring me to draw Survival and Squee and Vengevine to do something amazing, my combo is one card. With Survival, I automatically get every piece of my combo. Hopefully by now you haven't thought, screw this guy, he keeps talking about magic cards and I only care about Netrunner. Hopefully you're still reading. I understand the feeling. I only care about Netrunner too. You, me, and Richard Garfield all agree that it's his best game. So, what's a one-card combo in Netrunner? No, we don't have anything as broken as Necropotence or Survival of the Fittest yet. Aesop's Pawn Shop comes to mind quickly. It adds small efficiency onto many cards like Armitage Code Busting, Bank Job, anything you can play for free, etc. Is this a one-card combo? Yes, in a way. You can build a deck around it, and its inherent existence in that deck makes all those cards a little more powerful. It's a weak one-card combo, but even that can be good. How about Noise? Yes, Noise is a one-card combo. You build a deck around him, and he adds a substantial benefit onto many cards. Your deck can be so full of cards that combo with him that you essentially always have some of them. When a card combos with your entire deck as a whole, it's a one-card combo. Not only that, but you can begin the game with him and play. How awesome! Noise might be a powerful one-card combo, but is that strategy a good one? If all the virus cards sucked and didn't do much, like Original Netrunner, LOL, then he wouldn't be a good combo. If the synergy is required for the card to reach an okay expected value, then that's kind of a bad strategy. If the synergy your combo creates takes already Decent or strong cards and makes them really strong together, then that is a good strategy. Noise is an example of a good synergy deck. A grouping of cards that are individually all good and together even stronger. Parasite? Good. Data Sucker? Good. Medium? Good. Imp? Good. Personal Workshop? good parasite and data sucker even better parasite appearing off workshop even better all of those cards individually reasonable playable even strong cards also trashing the top card of R&D wow that's synergy this deck is a strong archetype because the expected value of every card is high Every card is individually decent and gains automatic bonuses from things like my Noise ability and additional Synergy power part of the time when comboed with the right other cards in my deck. That's a one-card combo. That's a Synergy deck. It's not an auto-win one-card combo. Noise doesn't fetch three other cards by himself, put them in play, and then say GG, but... It's a strong combo. One-card combos tend to be either engine cards, that is, cards that provide access to tons of cards, tutor repeatedly for cards, or provide nearly unlimited resources. Or they are synergy cards, cards that provide a significant boost to a wide array of other cards so that when you play them all together, the result is very strong. Noise and Aesop's Pawn Shop are examples of synergy one-card combos in Netrunner. Project Atlas is kind of an engine one-card combo, though only if you can manage to over-advance it, so it is a limited one. Summary, we have different kinds of combos of varying effectiveness. One-card combos are engine cards that provide massive access to cards or resources, or repetitive deck-searching potential. A one-card synergy combo is simply a card that powers up tons of other cards, allowing the creation of a synergy deck to be built around it. A one-card win combo is something that lets you tutor for or massively draw to get multiple pieces of a win combo. If these are consistent and fast, they tend to utterly dominate formats and require bannings to fix. A multi-card win combo is a set of cards that, if you draw them all, can enable you to simply win the game, possibly in some sort of mega-turn where you execute a loop repeatedly, or by executing a hard lock on your opponent, denying him the ability to do anything. The strength of a multi-card win combo depends on several factors. A. How many cards are required? More cards is way, way worse. B. Do any of those cards have redundant backups that fulfill the same purpose? This makes the extra cards needed more tolerable. c. How consistently does it win if assembled? Is it 100% automatic? Or are there viable, played countercards? Plascrete, countering Scorch. Gordian Blade, countering Whirlpool Cell Portal Infinite Loop. A commonly played countercard is far more detrimental than a narrow, ignored one like Deus Ex which will only become a factor if your combo becomes popular in the metagame. D. How fast is your combo? Resource-intensive to pull off. Cheap cards are obviously better, since you need to assemble your combo and win before your opponent wins. A standard combo is two or more cards that, if used together, generate a more powerful effect than they normally do. The strength of a standard combo is determined by looking at the expected value of all the cards. Not the best-case scenario, but looking at all three of the individual strength of card A, the individual strength of card B, and the strength of A and B together. If A and B are good cards on their own, this combo is very likely powerful. If one of A or B is worthless on its own, such as any combo using Sunset, your combo is really narrow. Perhaps you can justify your Akitaro and Cell Portal combo by saying Akitaro is good on its own, but if the net effect of that card that's worthless on its own isn't very strong when combined, you're probably better off cutting it. In general, if you're trying to make a combo work and one or more of the cards is bad by itself, then the combo had probably better win or do something insanely strong to justify it. Merely doing something good is not enough here. But if each individual piece is a useful, decent card, then the bar is set lower. The combo being merely good is sufficient here. Historically, potential combo cards that are bad on their own are some of the absolute hardest cards to evaluate the strength of. Some people will try to think of their combos and see potential and think they're amazing. They might be right, and a crazy good deck will be built from it. Or they might be massively overvaluing the actual value of the combo or underestimating or ignoring possible counters to it and be wrong. Others will look at the card and go, That sucks. It doesn't do anything. They might be right because the combo wasn't actually that viable. Or they might be wrong and other people will make the amazing combo deck with it and then make fun of them on online forums because they had said it was bad. Anyone giving their thoughts or analysis of these cards is taking a risk. First of all, no matter what they say, tons of people will violently disagree with them. No, this is the best card ever, because with X and Y you win the game if they don't have Z or simply because they might say a card is okay because of its potential, which is hard to determine, and then it turns out it actually was the greatest card ever because its win is consistent, or some cards are printed later that make it suddenly amazing. Some final thoughts on some new Netrunner cards. Replicator. Repetitive tutoring. That's a potential one-card combo engine right there. You get a hardware that has the ability to trash itself, to tutor for other hardware, and this becomes a true tutor loop. Maybe it's just a Synergy card. Maybe it actually sucks and will suck forever because it's not efficient enough or something. I don't know. But it's a card to keep your eye on, because even if it's bad now, and it might be terrible, at any point in the future, the right mix of cards might exist to make it suddenly turn into an unstoppable engine of hardware fuel. Whirlpool. Yeah, it's totally a piece of a 3-plus card win combo with Bullfrog or Cell Portal and a third card to kill, possibly with more required. That's right. It's a combo with Bullfrog or Cell Portal, cards that are bad on their own and defeated by a Gordian Blade. Nobody plays Gordian Blade. Oh, wait. You can say no one plays Deus Ex, but you can't say no one plays Gordian. So this card has potential to be a part of an auto-win combo, but there are very valid consistency questions. That said, Whirlpool combos do have redundancy in their favor. It can be in front of either Bullfrog or Cell Portal to do something nasty. And in the future, maybe better cards than these will come out that it works with, and it will get a lot better. You can Bullfrog them over to a June bug for the kill or to a Cell Portal server. So there are multiple endings to the combo that are possible. Right now, most of the combos are just stopped cold by a Gordian Blade, so I question their validity. But the card does have potential. It's not a strong card on its own, though. And it's one use. So if you don't kill them with it, it just goes away. And that's a mark against it. Surge. It's a combo card that does nothing on its own. That's a mark against it. But at least it does combo with many cards, not just one. So that's in its favor. Is it synergy enough to make up for the fact that you can't use it by itself? Maybe. And that's the end of that article about combos. I should have said off the top, it's not the little pretzel things. It's short for combinations. The Maker's Eye. Ed Matinian. Here is another artist I'd like to highlight. I'll provide links in the show notes to his website, to his Deviant Art page, and also to RetakiDB for all of the cards of his that are in the Reboot card pool, of which there are 53. In the full Fantasy Flight and Null Signal pool, there are 90. And in fact, uh, Ed is still doing work because there were four in NSG's latest set. We've already seen 14 of Matinian's cards. In the Core Set, Mimic, Forged Activation Orders, turret, Corporate Troubleshooter, Chum, and San San City Grid. Now that's quite a variety because you've got people with FAO and Troubleshooter. You've got the Virtual with turret and Chum. You have... Sansan, San, which is like, a you know, one of those wide, sprawling metropolis views. In the genesis cycle so far, we've seen restructured data pool, TMI, vamp, nerve agent, edge of world, force of nature, pheromones, and salvage. So here, it's far less on the real world and more on the virtual. And there's a certain minimalist, I would say, sort of light swirling look to a lot of Edmontinian's art vamp is maybe the best example of this where it's sort of like uh, what exactly is going on here Um, but that's that's what I've seen a lot of his stuff used for and again we've already seen 14 cards in the mm, what 200 some cards that exist so far in the game as far as we have gone well I feel like I've been out of breath for this entire episode and my voice is pitched higher. See, this is what happens when I record at seven at night instead of at seven in the morning. Anyway, many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music is from Alexi action. The website is netrunner 2.1.com. You can play games on retechie.fun. If you have a buddy or if you don't go to the discord server and find a buddy play some games, reach out to me. If you want to play some games, that's fine. Or if you have any questions or comments or corrections, I'm always open to that. The final segment is the AstroScript pilot program where we go back to the worlds of Android. We've finished Haas Bioroid, finally, after weeks. And now we'll start in on Gintechi. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Jinteki Jinteki has undergone more change in the last 20 years than in the last 200. Leading the venerable Japanese company's transformation are Chairman Satoshi Hiro, an irreverent and revolutionary executive, and the introduction of vat-grown biological androids known as clones. Although Gentechi was slower to enter the labor solutions market, it has since leveraged its massive corporate infrastructure to produce clones faster and more cheaply than Haas Bioroid can produce Bioroids. Many saw Ginteki's pivot as sudden and dramatic, but the Megacorp's recent successes are undeniable. With roots stretching back to the 19th century, the companies that would later become Jinteki began in pharmacy. After capitalizing on the biomedical revolution of the 20th and 21st centuries, the corp became known for its organ replacement and enhancement technologies, especially muscle augmentation. Jinteki represented the pinnacle of Japanese business practices and engineering, And it remained fiercely dedicated to the guiding principles of collaboration, excellence, and hard work. Ultimately, the combination of internal research and acquired technologies enabled Gentechi to innovate the world's first economically viable clones, a labor force that could directly compete with Haas Bioroids' products. Because its techniques remain proprietary, Gentechi has cornered the market on human clones. None of their competitors have been able to independently develop the technology needed for the stable vat growing of clones. And Gentechi's patents won't be expiring anytime soon. Gentechi is slow to license out their patents to competitors, but quick to litigate. Some companies have chosen to simply sell their discoveries wholesale, Genteki's success has enabled it to acquire the vast majority of the world's expertise and patents on genetic engineering, which it has put to use in various fields. Since the ascension of chairman Satoshi Hiro, Genteki has undergone a massive corporate restructuring. Hiro was a lab contractor who became head of Jinteki's American operations shortly after he unlocked the accelerated in vitro maturation process. And nobody expected that the board would name him, an outsider and relatively young man, as its new chairman. In an unprecedented move, Hiro relocated Jinteki's headquarters from its historic Neo-Tokyo offices to the Nihongai district of New Angeles. Many section chiefs were let go, while other departments were consolidated or split up among new managers. The rapidity and extent of these changes came as a shock to everyone, with some retired Jinteki officers voicing concerns that the new Jinteki had lost its way and turned its back on its rich traditions. Nevertheless, Chairman Hero appears determined to shepherd his company into its next phase of evolution. This reorganization is likely still in progress, further demonstrating Gentechi's status as a dynamic company. With several new key acquisitions and inventions, Gentechi stands poised to shape the labor market for years to come. accelerating development growing a complex living being from a single cell to a mature adult takes time patience and expertise growing a mature adult growing a mature adult normally takes 20 years too long for the typical business cycle but accelerating growth has its pitfalls Tissues can fail to mature properly, resulting in specimens that have the proper size but improper characteristics. Organs can grow misshapen or even malignant. Clone stability can be a tricky issue, as an improperly prepared specimen may be prone to physical or mental breakdown. Gentechi has worked carefully to identify these challenges and overcome them, in the decades since its founding. What were considered biological miracles in the 20th century, from single cell cloning to the polymerase chain reaction to tissue culture, provided stepping stones for the landmark discoveries that Genteki has since pioneered. Genteki's advances integrate a mastery of genetic engineering with accelerated growth techniques both of which are exemplified in every product, dating back to Genteki's earliest muscle augmentation specimens. Even as the Megacorp leverages its proprietary techniques, it remains rigorous in its quality control measures. It uses only quality-assured stem cell lines, as well as blastocysts that have been custom-engineered for proper genetic identity. Every sample is comprehensively tested to ensure that only tissues with the appropriate DNA sequences are used for specimen growth. This includes a thorough screening of gene expression level for both coding and non-coding RNAs, And Genteki conducts qualitative and quantitative tests for proteins and RNA. It even conducts spot testing on mitochondrial expression levels and performs thorough metabolite screening. Customers can be confident that every known variable has been quantified and verified, which ensures that the clone is working as intended when we release it to the new owner. Gentechi's testing sets the industry standard, both for whole clones and also for organ deliveries. Its products are fully guaranteed to operate at the pinnacle of function for the entirety of their planned lifespans so long as the owner follows the regular maintenance schedule. This level of reliability assures customers that they have ample time to replace an older Gentechi product with the newest iteration, whether it's a trusted clone or a vital organ. Gentechi has spent decades developing customized solutions to cloning challenges Each clone it creates takes humanity a step closer to perfection. Genetic Perspectives Genetic engineering can do much more than fashion clones. It can offer medical treatment, create genetic modifications in humans, or feed the ever-growing world populations. Humanity has performed genetic manipulation since farmers domesticated the first crops, pets, and livestock. Selective breeding enabled humanity to refine organisms to serve us far more efficiently, from crops that provided more abundant harvests to animals that grew fur better suited for weaving. Now, rather than taking dozens of generations to identify and refine a trait, or blindly exposing organisms to toxic mutagens in the hopes of achieving variation, a new organism can be deliberately synthesized to include a specified characteristic. In the event that a trait is poorly or inefficiently expressed, genetic tweaks can better optimize future generations. The potential applications are limitless. Humanoid clones are by far the most dramatic example of genetic manipulation. Genteki's biological machines are engineered for productive work in a variety of environments and industries. Specimens are developed for specific tasks with a variable emphasis on physical ability, mental acuity, or social interactions. The requisite genes are all carefully mapped along with their pathways so that the subtlest tweak of gene expression levels or protein efficiency can achieve the desired traits. Of course, not every gentechi product requires the creation of a complete organism. From both a medical perspective and an agricultural one, it is frequently more efficient to produce a single organ, Human organs can be custom grown from a patient's stem cells to synthesize a replacement on demand. Gene conditioning shops offer medical treatments like synthetic blood and genetic resequencing to maximize performance and longevity, or cures for hereditary diseases through allele repression. Modified hypoallergenic tissues provide genetic enhancements for cosmetic procedures, from a more symmetrical visage to feather hair grafts. Significant developments in mental health research were born out of advancements in neural conditioning, another Gentechi specialty. A simple brain map can identify abnormalities and even diagnose multiple psychiatric disorders and illnesses. More patients are getting the treatment they need faster, treatment that is specifically tailored to their genetic and neurological makeup. Synthetic animals, including the teacup giraffe and elephant, are prized among the glitterati, while other more practical livestock, like the gog, provide more meat per animal to feed the growing populations of Earth and Luna. Animals that were previously considered extinct, including the polar bear and woolly mammoth, have been given new life thanks to the miracles of modern genetic science. Genetic manipulation of plants also represents a significant improvement for both agricultural efficiency and environmental impact. Synthetic crops optimized for water retention and heat resistance exploit territories that were previously considered useless, including the Great American Desert and the South Amazon. Lichens and other basic plant forms have been introduced to the Martian and lunar environments to further terraforming efforts and prove it can be done. Other bacteria and fungi are engineered to trap and break down a broad range of harmful environmental toxins, including radioactive waste products of old fission reactors and fallout contaminants from the war. Complex organic molecules are readily synthesized and isolated in large quantities, which have cut down dramatically on the need for materials that would have previously been refined from petrochemicals. Genetic engineering provides humanity with a means to transform the living world. Gentechi provides the insight and the tools to enable humanity to thrive on our increasingly crowded planet as well as the frontiers beyond its boundaries. Cloning has the potential to replicate perfection. Let me repeat that. Cloning has the potential to replicate perfection perfection. Chairman Hiro, Jinteki Corporation.